0: This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining the monthly Schroder's Global Markets Perspective podcast. My name is Philip Robotham. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Daniel McFetrich, head of Schroder's Global and International Equity Research and fund manager of the Section 65 approved Smart Manufacturing Fund. The Smart Manufacturing Fund forms part of the Global Transformation Fund range approved for local distribution in South Africa uh, and is a suite of funds that gives our clients exposure to the most powerful themes shaping the world we live in. For more information on any of the topics discussed on this podcast, please do not hesitate to contact your usual Schroeder's representative. We're going to spend the next 15 minutes or so recapping what's happening in global markets and then focus on some of the leading investment themes shaping the investment landscape as we know it. Well, hello, Daniel, and welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Phil. Good to be here.
1: As I said, perhaps we can start with a brief recap of what's been going on year to date in global markets. Uh, Obviously, equity markets will be the focus, and and they've been continuing to struggle of late. Uh, US markets are down another 6% this month. That's 20% this year, fueled mostly by growth stocks, which are down another 4% last week and closing in on a negative 30% year-to-date in the U.S. Uh, European markets are also down between 11 and 15%. China's down around 15%. That's promoted many economic uh, economists to slash forecasts for their GDP growth. Our own forecast has is, is now been revised down to three and a half percent in 2022. And of course, the JSE is also down around eight percent. Could we start with um, your thoughts and experiences in these markets year to date?
0: Yes, no problem, Phil. I mean, it's obviously been a very challenging year to date for the markets. Um, I think obviously at the beginning of the year, the focus was very much on the, um, the inflation and the rising interest rates and what that means for uh, what, people would perceive as richly valued stocks as the yield curve uh, changes went through. Uh, And then obviously, um, as the kind of market derating was continuing, we then had the invasion of Ukraine at the end of February, really then driving concerns about very uh, large spikes in inflation and um, energy prices and what that really means for the GDP outlook and recession risks so clearly quite a big uh, well quite a few areas of headwinds coming through um, and obviously that's what the market has, has struggled to understand what I would say as well is that um, the market is is looking at the future and looking at the companies in terms of the earnings that they're reporting the earnings at the moment remain very good across most of the cyclical areas I look at, for instance, where demand continues to be very, very strong. Uh, And so therefore the the weakness in the markets is very much about the market taking a much more bearish view, I think, of 2023 and what the outlook looks like there. So hopefully that gives a bit of a kind of an overview of what we're seeing. And, And Have you seen any
1: changes to consumer confidence given this backdrop coming through in some of the companies that you're talking to?
0: Uh, we have. Um, I, I Just just so um, we're aware, I mean, I tend to talk more to tech and uh, industrial companies, so um, I am not looking personally at, at more of the consumer side, but there have been quite a few uh, implications, negative implications on consumer confidence from recent earnings reports, notably in the US in the last couple of weeks. So I'm talking about Walmart and Target, etc., where they are talking about weakening consumer demand and consumers wanting to trade down, which I think is you know, obviously completely linked to these um, inflationary pressures that the consumer is grappling with. And just
1: touching on those inflationary pressures, have you seen any signs in the short term of in- inflation decelerating or even stabilising from these lofty levels?
0: Um, we we haven't really seen it in the data. What I'm looking at particularly is supply chain and logistics bottlenecks. And that's an area that I look at personally very closely. And we are beginning to see some slight signs in the last week or two of improvement on bottlenecks. And there's been a couple of auto and truck companies that have started telling me that they're being able now to, to secure supply of semiconductors, which has been a big problem uh, across the industrial complex for the last six months. So they're beginning to see signs of those bottlenecks easing. And I also had a Japanese company tell me this week that port congestion, which has been a very big issue for this company because they're an exporter from Japan into the U.S. is also beginning to ease. So uh, I am seeing some of the um, cost push inflationary pressures that we've seen driven by the supply chain tightness slowly begin to show signs of stabilization. But I think it's fair to say we haven't really seen that yet in the inflation data.
1: Well, that sounds like great news with regards to um, the, the, the freeing up of this opportunity and, and, and shipping. Um, the Shanghai Shipping Exchange, something that everyone seems to be an expert on in the last three months. Have you seen that start to, uh, to, to come off as well now?
0: Um, we haven't really seen a huge deceleration or fall in freight rates yet. I think there's a big debate going on on seasonality as well, because with Chinese New Year, you tend to have uh, implications seasonally. But this year, all, all the seasonal patterns that people tend to look at have been thrown up in the air because of the COVID lockdowns in China. So I think people are kind of wondering what that all means for the very short term in terms of component um, tightness, because clearly we are seeing easing of semis and port congestion in in places like the US. But at the same time in China, because of these forced lockdowns from the zero COVID policy there, we are seeing actually increased bottlenecks in China. So that's going to impact on, on that uh, data set particularly. So we we kind of don't really know, to be honest, if uh, what's what we're seeing there is demand or supply driven. So what I'm trying to say is it's quite noisy.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, COVID has increased demand for digitalisation, automation, efficiency, which are which are three topics I was going to touch on. But you've also just in, in implied that there's some other things identified that have been accelerated by this pandemic. And I'm assuming that uh, automation and reshoring are dominating a lot of what you're doing at the moment in your interaction with companies.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting here is that we've had this debate on reshoring, certainly into the US since 2010 2011 when the shale gas revolution started and it's something that everyone's kind of talked about theoretically but nothing's really come through in any of the hard data that i track what is definitely happening now though is that we are beginning to see in the hard data that there is deshoring of manufacturing out of china that is already beginning to happen so uh, one uh, stat i saw was that china's portion of asian low cost country imports into the u.s has declined from 66 percent in 2018 to 55% at the end of last year. So we are beginning to see the deshoring from China but I think it's fair to say in the hard data we haven't really seen kind of reshoring of manufacturing into the US or into Europe yet. What I would say though is every meeting I have with companies at the moment there seems to be another example an automation company will give me about another industry or company that they serve where they are seeing increased demand for either deshoring, reshoring Shoring or near-shoring. I mean, obviously, this is all the same in terms of what it means for demand for these automation companies because they're going to benefit either way. Um, but what we are definitely seeing is an increased appetite to uh, make supply chains more resilient. So companies are really focusing away from just minimising cost and global sourcing to resilience, flexibility, and best cost rather than low cost. So there's definitely a mind shift going on in industry, and you know it's coming out in quite a few um, manufacturing executive surveys that I read in terms of what percentage of these executives are considering changing their supply chains. It's Every time I read it, the, the percentage of executives considering a change just goes up and up. So what I would say is we are definitely seeing a lot more anecdotal evidence in the last year of this happening, and I think it's only a matter of time before we see it in the hard data
1: that's very interesting thank you um obvious loser in this environment you've already identified as china um other areas of asia i'm sure will also be affected would, would it be possible just to touch on those and also the impacts that essentially this increased cost level of producing stuff that's not across in the far east what will that be like or will the impact be like on the on the customer albeit several years away
0: yeah that's a very good question. Um, I think first of all, in terms of Southeast Asia we have seen since two thousand eighteen probably since we saw uh, Trump talking about um, you know tariffs etc with China in two thousand and eighteen we've definitely seen an increase in shifting capacity for multinationals from China into Southeast Asia. Vietnam has been a very popular area for a couple of Japanese companies that I talked to, uh, for instance, and they've been ramping up capacity there uh, for the last two to three years. Uh, what we are now seeing as well is um, they're moving kind of from Southeast Asia, incremental capacity dollars and now beginning to move into the US and into Europe. Um, but I think the big shift has been from China into Southeast Asia over the last three years, which I, I think will probably continue. And I think the other question you asked there, Phil, about uh, inflation is a really important one. And I think uh, certainly for a lot of the companies I-, I talk to, one of the the things that has come through recently is obviously the big increase in energy prices that we've seen, obviously associated with the invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, and what this is really doing is, is dramatically accelerating the paybacks for a lot of automation, electrification um, and sustainability investments. So uh, I've been seeing really interesting analysis to show that the paybacks have halved in terms of years for automation uh, investments now compared to, say, six months ago just purely on looking at what the oil prices are, what the energy prices are now versus at the end of last year. So, I do think um, the uh, what's, what it's going to mean is we're going to see more uh, production and manufacturing happening in so-called high-cost countries, but because it's going to be much more automated and because it's going to be much more energy efficient, uh, we are going to see some savings there that are going to counter that as well as supply chain and lead time savings. So. I think it will be necessarily slightly inflationary, but I don't think it will be as inflationary as a lot of people are suggesting.
1: Uh, the, and the other point that usually comes up when when you're mentioning uh, automation, um, there, obviously there'll be sectors that are likely to win and lose. Um, I suppose two-part question again, the firstly will initially reaction, reaction will be mass job losses expected in these uh, core regions. Uh, Is that a um, is that a fair assumption and secondly how do you spot the winners within this automation landscape that's that's by, by all accounts changing so dramatically.
0: Yes yeah, so uh, on the first question i know the narrative out there is that when you automate it's obviously going to lead to job losses obviously at the plant level that is that is true when you actually track macro data and i would say automotive is probably the industry to look at here because it's the most automated what we see on a macro view uh, and we've seen this consistently is as you increase the penetration of automation and robotics it does not impact on the um, the employment level in the industry. What we're finding is a lot of the automation and robotics innovation is now coming through, not in very large um, payload robots that are kind of almost picking up cars, but these are small cobots which tend to work alongside humans and also areas where they can perform tasks where a lot of uh, the manufacturers are really struggling to actually get humans to come and do the job anyway because it's very unsafe. So, I mean, for instance, in automotive, we're seeing a lot of small robots robots now being used in the manufacturing of EV batteries uh, and that is something that is just so, it needs such precision uh, that you can't really do it manually with a worker, you have to do it with a very small robot, uh, usually um, you know, a SCARA robot for instance. So what I would say is we haven't seen at the macro level uh, a big impact on job opportunities What I also would say is that in automotive, it is necessarily actually automation is showing an ability to improve workforce safety, which uh, I think is also a positive. So we feel uh, pretty constructive from an ESG perspective that automation is actually very good in terms of economic development, uh, driving productivity gains, improving worker safety and doesn't come through at the cost of employment. So, I mean, hopefully that kind of answers that question.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Um, And what about spotting the winners within this fascinating um, sector or or, or opportunity set as it develops?
0: Well, in automation, I think one of the big trends we've seen over the last 20 years is the bundling of hardware and software. Uh, And that's very important because obviously uh, what we're looking for is to become an automated production line. What you're going to need is not only the data to come off the field devices on the factory floor, but they need to be interpreted and analysed. And that's obviously where the software comes through. So what we do, uh, we have um, a team of local analysts at Schroder's where we are engaging and seeing uh, automation companies and we're trying to understand uh, which companies are best positioned to take share consistently from having the best hardware and software integrated at the point of use. So we think that's a really big competitive advantage. So that's what we're using. Uh, and as I said, there's a lot of bottom up uh, research that goes into this and just for instance, I'm actually going to the Hanover Automation Fair next week in Germany where we expect to see more innovations and more software developments and hopefully that will help us understand which companies are at the forefront of integrating the hardware and software because I think that's pretty key.
1: That's fantastic and we we'll look forward to hearing about uh, so, some of the stories that come out of that fair. Which sectors are we most likely to see reshore other than the automotive sector um, as, as you've just discussed?
0: Well, we've definitely seen a huge amount of very large projects being announced in semiconductor already in terms of fab production. Um, obviously going into the U.S. and into Europe to obviously ease the reliance on China. But one other area that we've actually seen a lot of reshoring announcements is in medical and pharma. And that's quite interesting to think about because obviously the demand profile there is is very defensive. But also, you know, if you think about what's been going on over the last three years in terms of the innovation on the COVID vaccines, a lot of that was driven by people producing locally in developed markets uh, and obviously trying to reshore more production into developed markets as well. So I think it's important to show that this is not just into automotive and into semis, but it's also coming through into areas as, like medical and pharma as well.
1: Are there any other uh, investable themes that you're seeing that you've identified which would suit within your smart manufacturing revolution that you describe um, on, the, uh, on, on the brochure and marketing material related to your fund?
0: Yeah, I mean, as I touched on this, I think software is a very key enabler of the smart manufacturing revolution, uh, which is basically uh, the way we envisage this. It's the confluence of hardware innovation, software innovation, material innovation that drives manufacturing to become continuous and real time responsive to changes in demand and supply. I mean, that's kind of where we're heading to. And I know some people call it industry 4.0. Other people call it the industrial renaissance. What we have got is an unprecedented confluence of hardware, software and materials. So I think having mentioned software, materials is another area that we are very interested in, in terms of what new material developments can come through to improve the performance and efficiency of industrial assets. And we're looking at industrial assets, not just as factories, but industrial assets in the field as well. So that would look at, you know, uh, things like trains and trucks uh, and um, aerospace and defence, areas where we think there are, new materials coming through to to really innovate and drive better energy efficiency. I mean, one, one company that we think is really interesting is uh, Tektronic, which is a, a power tool innovator based in Hong Kong. And they're, they've been a first moving innovator into battery powered power tools. And they're now innovating that technology into heavy construction equipment. Uh, which I think is absolutely mind-blowing to think you could see a big kind of digger being used for road construction, which is being powered by a battery because this company has been so innovative on battery power. I mean, that makes huge sense in terms of energy efficiency savings, but also efficiency uh, for the worker, because obviously, uh, you know, you can um, really uh, tailor the torque of the the cutting machines to, uh, to the surface that you're working on. So, I mean, innovations into, in materials like battery materials, they can be leveraged into the industrial vertical and in the construction vertical and have very positive economic and ESG benefits. So, that would be, I think, another example.
1: Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for your time today, Daniel. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Uh, And we look forward to engaging with you further in 2022. And as I said right at the beginning, uh, for more information on any of the topics discussed on this podcast, do not hesitate to get in contact with one of us um, at the firm. Thank you very much indeed for your time.
0: The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroder's Investment Management Limited is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 48998, registration number 01893220, incorporated in England and Wales. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation. Any funds, services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment.
1: This podcast does not constitute an offer to anyone or a solicitation by anyone to subscribe for shares of Schroeder International Selection Fund. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as advice and is therefore not a recommendation to buy or sell shares. An investment in the company entails risks which are fully described in the prospectus. Subscriptions for shares of the company can only be made on the basis of its latest key investor information document and prospectus, together with the latest audited annual report, copies of which can be obtained free of charge from Schroder's Investment Management, South Africa. Disclosures and Risk Factors Collective investment schemes are generally medium to long-term investments. The value of participatory interest or the investments may go down as well as up. Past performance is not necessarily a guide to future performance. Collective investment schemes are traded at ruling prices and can engage in borrowing and script lending. A schedule of fees and charges and maximum commissions is available on request from the manager. The manager does not provide any guarantee either with respect to the capital or the return of a portfolio. The manager has a right to close the portfolio to new investors in order to manage it more efficiently in accordance with its mandate.